This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We have a great guest for this episode. Our guest is chartered psychologist, has a master's degree in communications, psychology, and sport and exercise psychology. She also has a PhD in political communications. She has written several books, including Psychology of Exercise, Performing Under Pressure, I Can, The Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Josephine Perry. Welcome, Josephine. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so you have an interesting background. Could you tell us more about your background and your journey? Yeah, it's a, an odd background. Um, so I actually began my career in journalism. Um, I worked for an American TV network Um, as an intern and then spent time freelancing with them for a number of years um, on their news desk, which was utterly fascinating. Um, And then I moved into more of the kind of traditional PR side. So my first PR job was writing press releases on behalf of Tony the Tiger, who um, sells Frosties. And um, I was doing kind of political communication, some of the more kind of traditional PR work Um, and I did that until 2013. Um, A lot of that was crisis communications which I found really really interesting of how do you um, help reassure people when there's really scary stuff going on sometimes Um, and I loved the actual doing of the communications. I loved talking to journalists, I loved coming up with story ideas or um, pieces of research we could be doing. But by the time you you get to have a nice director of communications job, you also have quite a big team. And I just didn't enjoy that side of it so much. So I was kind of not in a brilliant place with work. And um, I went over to do Ironman Melbourne. Um, So before I had a baby, Ironman was my thing. Um, My husband and I went over for an amazing holiday in Australia. And we were on the beach about to start Ironman Melbourne. And the day before the race, the the water had looked beautiful and it was calm and gentle and amazing. The morning of our race, it looked horrific. It was so windy, so wavy. I've seen YouTube clips since of just makes me feel ill just looking at it. And I was utterly terrified to get in the water. And the guy on the tannoy said, you cannot control those waves you can only control how you feel about them. And it was genuinely the first time I'd really thought about how our mind impacts how we can perform in sport. So I'd always just done okay in sport by working hard. Um, But I don't have any particular talent in sport. I just enjoyed it and worked quite hard. But it, it suddenly was that light bulb moment of, ah, if I use my brain in this, there might actually be a a different outcome. And I was able to get in the water that day um, and I had my fastest Ironman to date. Um, 
And it just got me thinking that there's there's this real untapped area that many athletes don't realize. I'd never even considered. I'd never read anything about it. Um, and I wanted to learn more and more. So I quit my job. I went back to university. I did, um, in the UK, you do a conversion course if you've already got a degree. So it's kind of a one-year master's in basic psychology. I then went on to do a master's in sport and exercise psychology. And then here, you do three years of supervised practice. So you're allowed to work as a sport and exercise psychologist, but you have a very qualified supervisor um, that can kind of guide you and steer you through that. Uh, so I did that, and I've been uh, running my own business now uh, for five years. Okay, so really interesting story that something announcer said before the race, it clicked somehow and you ended up studying and getting so interested that you you quit your job. Have you had any any regrets? I, I'm quite a fast decision maker. And so I, when I've decided to do something, that's what's happening. Um, I, I might be better off in life if I spent more time researching things and pulling the data together first. Um, so to be very honest, I did not know what I was getting into. I went off to do the conversion course without realizing I would need to do another master's afterwards, without realizing there was three years of supervised practice without realizing, I think I worked out the whole process cost me something like 25, 30,000 pounds. And I, I didn't research that before I went into it. Um, and I might've done things differently if I had. So I love where I am now. Um, but I probably could have made things easier for myself, um, by being a bit more rational and sensible about the approach. <laughs> Yeah. All right. That's, that's interesting. So, so now you have written several books and you working as a chartered psychologist. How do you allocate, allocate your time between, between different tasks? That's really hard. One of the things I did when I set up my business was to create a little manifesto for my business, which sounds very grand for a tiny business. Um, but I was very aware when I had been just like as a regular age group triathlete, I had seen people set up businesses based around triathlon and not do it particularly professionally. And I didn't want to be that kind of person that's taken a hobby into a career and not done it brilliantly professionally. So this manifesto was to kind of keep my head in the right place to make sure I followed um, the guidance that I would set myself. And one of those elements was that my one-to-one -one clients will always come first so before I do any writing work or any corporate work I will always make sure that my clients are okay and that I've sent their notes through and I've communicated with them recently um, so that means they always take priority because they're individuals lives that you're helping support you don't want to leave somebody hanging or not got what they need from you so that comes first. Um, and then it's actually been very helpful, I guess, starting this brand new career just as I had a baby. So my first day of setting up my business was also the first day I started IVF to have my daughter, expecting it wouldn't work. There was very small chance. So 
I could put all my heart and soul into this business and I, I would be okay about it. Um, and then amazingly it worked. So there was, how do I start a business, do all my training and look after a child? Um, and so actually I was able to do things very slowly. So she went to nursery for two days a week to start with, and that gave me two days a week to start building a business and it gradually grew. So it means you can be very flexible about, I will do things in the evening when she sleeps and you can fit in the right type of work then. And writing work, you can do any time of the day. Um, whereas client work is going to be in other people's normal hours. Um, writing, you can do at night. You can do, during the lockdown last year, we had no childcare and we were both working, trying to work full time with a four-year-old at home was chaos. Um, so a lot of one of my books got written at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and you can you can flex and do that if you have to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear that you have this manifesto vision or mission or whatever you call it. I think it's great that you you set it up in the beginning so you you have a direction where you go, what's important. So that's nice to hear. And when you said that you can write write book or do writing at any time I think for you as a professional writer you can do it at any time I think most of us maybe cannot do it at at any time at all but yeah that's that's interesting so could you could you tell a little bit about your your different books when when have you written each one and what are they about so the first book is called performing under pressure and it was the book I would have liked when I was doing my master's and starting out as a trainee sports psychologist. So I, I kind of wanted a how-to guide of what what are the reasons someone might come to see you and how would you help them? And certainly our master's courses or the master's course I took in the UK are very theoretical based. And so there is very little on that applied side. Um, and so Performing Under Pressure is basically nine chapters of the key reasons somebody comes to see a sports psychologist. Many anxiety, difficulty controlling emotions, uh, needing more confidence. How do I get better? How do I handle setbacks and injuries? All those kind of things that, as applied psychs, we see every day. So it was those nine chapters. And then at the end of each chapter, it suggests activities that might help somebody handle those issues. And so the second half of the book is 64 different activities that you can do. Um, frustratingly, I could probably write a book with about 130 activities now because you keep discovering new ones going, oh, I could have put that in. Um, but it it was where I was at the time, I guess. Um, and so it's designed, I kind of wrote it in mind for trainee sports psychs, but actually I know coaches use it a huge amount. And the idea is it's accessible enough for coaches without that much of a psychological background to be able to pick up and use with their athletes. But it's also very evidence-based, so they get the reassurance. It's not just being made up. There's a huge amount of peer-reviewed work behind everything we're suggesting and talking about. Um, the Psychology of Exercise um, is part of a series that Routledge have on the psychology of everything. And it was clearly an area they were missing, and they asked me if I would work on that area. Um, and it's an area I probably didn't study enough in my master's. It, I think many people certainly here go into a master's in sport and exercise only focusing on the sport side. 
um, and that exercise side isn't taken so seriously. And so I certainly didn't listen enough on that side. I was so focused on the sport. And actually, I thought it would then be a really good opportunity to really go back and learn much more what I should have learned, but also how to put it into action. So that focuses on different ages. So the psychology of exercise for children, teenagers, adults, retirees, those with health conditions, and then an extra section on um, exercise addiction, because I work a lot with people with exercise addiction and um, there's not much understanding of it. And there's so many different definitions and um, it's not brilliantly understood. So I thought that would be really important to be in there. Um, and then the final bit was um, I got a contact during lockdown last year, kind of last April, of um, a brilliant publisher setting up a new publishing company who wanted some sports psych work for children, for teenagers. And would I be up for it? And um, I actually realised that's a really important area because probably half the inquiries I get are for parents worried about their teenagers. Um, and if we can learn the mental skills in sport as a teen, they work across life. So actually, the earlier you learn them, the more successful you can be in whatever you go on to do, whether that is in sport or whether it's in anything else. So that was really fun to write. Um, and it's much more like a workbook. It's got tons of questions to ask in it. It's got loads of worksheets to fill out as part of it. Um, I keep getting messages from parents saying, my son won't let me look in his book because he's written all over it and he's filled in all the bits so I'm not allowed to see. And I was like, that's what I want to see. I think as an author, it's amazing when somebody sends you a photo of the book you've written and it's just full of their notes and post-it notes sticking out. It's like, oh, they're, it, it's worked. It's made an impact. Um, and that's what I hope to see with I can. So it's it's interesting. Teenage years are not not the easy part of life, probably, and there are many many mental things. And then, if you also an athlete, could you tell a little bit what kind of interesting things you have in the book? What could be take home messages for our listeners here? Um, yeah, I'm I'm so glad I'm through teenage years, um, and I think what's very different from when. We were teenagers. You look younger than me, but from certainly when I was a teenager, um, is social media and that connection that teens today have, you know, and the comparisons that are available in a way that we we never had it. So you you might have those comparisons going on in your head at school or when you read a magazine, but no way near what teens have today, where every time they look at Instagram. It looks like somebody is fitter than them, is faster than them, is training more, is more sponsored than them, has got a scholarship to this American university. It's it's in their face all the time. And they're constantly having to try and filter out those comparisons. And so a lot of the book is focused on finding your own version of success and trying to be really clear, success is not winning. And when I was researching the book, one of the things that came over so strongly from the research is that the reason kids love doing sport is because it's active, it, it's exciting, it's fun, and it brings them friends. And the reason they stop doing sport is because it becomes competitive. And so 
I'm not sure where the blame lies for that element of competitivism that, that gets brought in. But as soon as it starts getting serious, then teens have got those pressures, they've got the anxieties, they feel they're under expectations and they drop out. And if we can stop that, if we can help kids keep that enjoyment far, far longer, then the research is showing that they stay in exercise for life and they're going to be far more successful in whatever they do. Um, so just, it, I would love someone to read it and feel a lot more confident about themselves as a result and comparing a lot less. For most sedentary behaviour and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data. Introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting edge next generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw three-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S.fibian.com. Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you said, I think now the sports for children and teenagers are created to make top athletes like that less than 1% becomes a top athlete, but we don't really think about that it would actually encourage them to be active in the life. And I think I see, I've been living in UK for some years and much more in Finland. And I think in UK, it's even more competitive. It's more about top sports, even with the younger kids. And in Finland, we have at least a little bit more of this culture of kind of that it's, it's fun, it's exercise. So how do you see the situation? How should we change this culture that it would actually support also other people than the 1% who might get become top? And we have lots of, lots of the language here isn't particularly helpful. So we talk about like the talent pathway. And, and that does mean that in some places, all of the effort and approach and language used is focused on that one percent and there are 99 percent of people that don't feel spoken to don't feel engaged what's really reassured me since the book came out is i've had lots of schools contact me for how do we do our sport in the way that your book is advocating how do we um get everybody engaged and and how do we persuade those who do feel like they could go on to do it properly, but that this is the best way to do it. 
And what's been really nice of talking with those schools is really highlighting that actually the more accessible your sport feels, the more people you have coming out on a Saturday morning to play rugby or cricket or football, then actually those who are really good and might make it professionally are going to be sifted to the top anyway. You'll spot them, but you've got far more choice of who who those people are when you've got four or five teams out on a Saturday rather than just the one who feel that it's not embarrassing to go out because they're the best. And so I really like um, a theory called self-determination theory. And I've been really trying to bring this in with a lot of the schools I work with of how do we embed the three pillars of self-determination theory much more strongly into their physical activity work so that the kids can feel some mastery. They can really feel that they're competent in the sports that they do. So they're not embarrassed to go and do it. They'll actually enjoy it. They won't feel awkward on the pitch. How do we build up that relatedness, that sense of belonging to the school PE department so that they all want to play and care less about which team it is that they've been put into and find ways that they can find their thing rather than just that, oh, everybody does rugby or everybody does cricket. And then really importantly, and it's really tricky as a team, how do we give them more autonomy? How do we give those kids a real choice and a real voice in what they're doing? And so I've been working with PE teachers on how about you let the kids design sessions? Because then they've got far more ownership, so they're going to be up for doing it. It will get them so much more engaged because in so many other parts of their school life, they're following such a strict curriculum, there's no leeway. Whereas actually, if you can give them the boundaries that still sit within the curriculum, but you get them to go and design their own games and activities, then they're there for you, then they're up for it. And then they feel like they're bought into it. Um, and that will be at whatever level you are. So I, it's one of, I'm a complete geek when it comes to self-determination theory. Um, but I find that so helpful for a really nice way of communicating. This is a really simple way to get far wider engagement in sport and exercise. So how how much do you have? I didn't know that you are working with schools and PE teachers. So how how much do you have done this work? And was it due to this uh, teenage book that you started to be contacted by the by the schools? Yeah, I haven't really done much schools work um, before this, um, but working a lot more with schools now, either with specific teams who want to go on and win a certain competition or actually to help them embed a much more success-focused, mastery-focused approach to sport and exercise within schools. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about self-determination theory, that you have the... external and internal uh, motivation and I've been thinking like for example let's say hill sprints or something that it's really hard you wouldn't say it's enjoyable and you might not have any external motivation if you're doing it you're not not competing in anything but for example I I like to do them I cannot explain really why I want to do hill sprints but do you think that the self-determination theory captures this, that you don't enjoy it, 
but you want to do it in in somehow this is a weird question but what, what what's your your take on this i i will often talk with athletes about type one fun and type two fun the type one fun is in that moment when you've got when you've gone out for a long run and you're in the flow and you might be listening to some amazing music and it's beautiful around you and actually you you notice in that moment you're mindful about it and you're like I'm actually enjoying this. That doesn't tend to be the type of thing when you're coughing your lungs up trying to climb up a hill. And that's where type two fun comes in. So in the moment, you're absolutely not enjoying it. It really hurts. A lot of my athletes that I work with are really long distance endurance athletes. They're cycling a thousand miles. They're running two, three hundred miles. They're doing those big events. And we will make it clear in the moment you are not going to enjoy that it is not an enjoyable thing to do but the satisfaction afterwards and that feeling of smugness when you're like I did that that's the type two fun and so actually when you can really um, illustrate that and be able to talk about it and communicate it it helps remind people that I'm doing this because I really value it afterwards so so do you think it's more like kind of still internal motivation that you just the enjoyment or the fun or the good part comes later or is it kind of external in a way that I achieved this or how 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 would you put it in the self-determination theory? I tend to see the external side as rewards, I guess, driven by others and that you're living up to other people's metrics. Whereas the internal side is more living up to your own metrics. That makes sense. So I do a lot of work. Um, there's another uh, an approach I love in psychology called ACT, acceptance and commitment theory. And that's an approach I tend to use a lot with athletes. And as part of that, we spend a lot of time focusing on values and what matters to you. And why I find that so helpful, particularly with athletes or exercisers who spend a lot of time comparing themselves with others, is that we can really highlight you are measuring yourself against somebody else's ruler. And that might be a an, a ruler we all recognize, like where you come in a race or how fast you did that hill sprint or whether you got a medal at the end, but it's still an external ruler. When we really focus on our own values, we set our own measurements and our own metrics, and then we can measure what matters to us instead. And then we become much happier, much more um, proud of ourselves, because we know we're living much more authentically with what matters to us rather than what we feel others are impinging on us. So when I'm using that kind of internal and external I try much more to focus on that internal is what matters to us. What would we measure in a way that gives us metrics that are important rather than what is somebody else measuring? Mm. So so the acceptance and commitment therapy is kind of about philosophical approach that you kind of think that why do I want to do this, that you kind of lay the base work and then it's easy to build upon that. Yeah, so rather than, or my understanding of it, is that rather than 
constantly trying to fight a lot of those feelings that we have and trying to squash them down and pretend they don't exist. It's a lot less stressful to actually accept that they're there and accept that sometimes we feel like that and there's often very good reasons we might feel like that from our past or from our values. And rather than trying to fight them the whole time, we can be much more productive with our time and our focus if instead we accept that they're there, we don't try and fight them, but instead we put our focus and our effort on what's really important to us. And that's why I love that values work because we can't, we don't always have choices to make that are perfect. That's not always an obvious choice to make but we can always move closer towards that value that we have set. Um, so often I might be working with an athlete and they'll be like, I don't know whether I'm doing this because of this or this. Is this a bad reason to be doing it? And they'll have some kind of these ethical conundrums. And we can go to their values then and say, okay, if you are living your life in line with these, what would these tell you to do? And then it becomes very clear. Oh, it would tell me to do this. Okay, well, that's that's your the life you want to be living. That will make you feel more authentically you. That will make you feel more comfortable. And a lot of the, the elements in sport is, can feel very aggressive and very macho of that kind of push yourself out your comfort zone, work harder, get tougher. And actually, I'm not sure that's always particularly helpful. I. I love the idea of actually don't try and get mentally tougher, try and get more mentally agile, more mentally flexible. And actually, if we find our comfort zone and we stretch just a little bit out of it, we still feel good. We still feel proud. We're still doing more than we were before, but without hating it. And when we hate it, I'm not going to do it. So what was the point? Yeah. When, when you said about mental toughness, I noticed when I was in the UK that That's really important thing in the UK. It's not in Finland. It's I think it's pretty UK thing. I don't know how it's in in US, but in UK everything is about mental toughness, and it led me to think about it. And for example, in soccer or football, uh, they are talking a lot about mental toughness. But I think it's kind of just that you actually submit yourself to the system. Like for example, if you are in the football academy. And you have an injury, and you still play. It's actually stupid because you might get injured even worse, and it might stop your career. So basically, I think many times mental toughness is actually just mental weakness because you submit to the system. How do you do? You see any point in this this comment? I love that perspective. I might well steal it. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of looking at it. That. And you are right, in the UK, we worship at the temple of mental toughness. Um, and I admit, when I started my business, I talked about it too, because that's what I thought you needed to talk about to try and attract people to come and work with you. Um, but actually, the people I see who do really well are the people who are flexible and they're able to adapt and they're intelligent with the decisions they make. And they do stop when they've got an injury. Um, and go and get it looked at really quickly so that they can come back a lot quicker. And they're the people that have careers that last a lot longer. And they're the people that are not focused on outcomes and winning, which is 
incredibly unhelpful when you're trying to win because you focus on the wrong things. They're the people that focus on mastery and just doing something brilliantly. And so they tend to do far better over time anyway. Yeah. So how how do you define mental toughness? Is it like you are not appreciating your long-term health and you put like outcomes before your health or what what is mental toughness in in your opinion how would you define it i guess i would actually see it as a lack of self-awareness so i, I really like your um, definition there of kind of, of of following the rules too much and of of not of not doing what works for you and there there are a few characteristics that we tend to see regularly and multi-medal winning athletes. But actually, if there was some kind of algorithm for what makes a multi-medal winning athlete, we would have it and there would there would be many people in that boat. What seems to be really effective is those people and those coaches that understand those people to pull out what is best and what the strengths of an individual and really really making the most of those strengths um so knowing yourself inside out and being able to make the most of those knowing what works for you knowing what you can pull out of the bag when you need to but also when you might need to step back and so that's much more about being agile and flexible and um not having to like push through every barrier sometimes you might want to sidestep them You're a lot less likely to get hurt. It's a lot easier. Um, so why not do that? So it's about being clever, really, rather than just kind of head down, focused forward and drilling your way through. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.